You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Michaela, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by four senior leaders within the Melbourne tech community. In this episode, we will be discussing chat GPT and generative AI in the enterprise, covering areas such as regulatory, policy concerns, low and no code, developer productivity, and existing and emerging, emerging uses. Before we jump into the questions, it would be great to meet our panelists. I'll start with you, David. Can you please introduce yourself and kick things off? Sure. Uh, so I work for Pepperstone as the CTO here, and I'm Australian by background, but I spent a long time overseas, you know, in financial centres uh, such as Hong Kong and New York and London. So recently returned a couple of years ago to Australia, and you know, I'm I'm very passionate about technology, unsurprisingly. Um, so. Really, technology in all forms, whether it be digital media, digital art, you know, um, software, all forms of technology really excite me. So it's a bit about myself. Awesome. Thanks for that, David. Gus, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Gus Gollings. I'm a CTO. Recently, I've uh, been working in an Australian fintech startup based out of Byron Bay, called Zepto. Prior to that, I was a uh, senior engineering manager at Invato for the best part of a decade. And before that, I uh, worked as the technical director of theconversation.edu.au, um, a news outlet. Uh, had a history in academic research and um, qualitative methods uh, teaching. Um, but my passions really lie in the intersection of sociology and computer science. I'm very interested in the way technology affects society, the way we read and write, the way we record information. So the topic of the day is uh, is of super interest to, to that intersection for me. Awesome. Thanks for that, Gus. Andrew, would you like to go next? Morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew Fisher. Uh, I am uh, the Director of Engineering Product and Innovation at ESOP, which is a luxury cosmetics retailer. And I'm also the co-founder and CTO at Loypal, which is a startup that focuses on um, customer attention and loyalty uh, to drive um, business growth. Um, so working on that. Um, I've worked across, uh, whilst I'm in Australia now, I, I've worked uh, extensively across uh, Europe and Asia. And I'm really interested in uh human behavior and technology and how those two things um, come together. So I am particularly passionate about customer experience and how technology facilitates that. Um, and yeah, really interested in how all things tech and people come together. Fantastic. Thanks, Andrew. And finally, Emil, can you please introduce yourself? Thanks, Michaela. Morning, all. Uh, my name is Hamil Deshmukh. Um, I'm the head of data and analytics at Wilson Group. Um, I have a background in software development. I fell into data and analytics and loved uh, the field. So I um, 
I did consulting for a bit. Um, been here in Australia since 2008. And then, so I've worked with Deloitte, uh, Aussie Post, Energy Australia, Coles, and more recently, Wilson Group. So yeah, my interest at the moment is on all things AI and uh, specifically how does AI affect um, the enterprise and how, how does it assist um, lay uh, people or business uh, users uh, do the job more more productively. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for that, everyone. Um, we'll dive into our first question brought forward to the group by David, which is: Given the heightened attention from regulators on artificial intelligence, how are you addressing the use of ChatGPT and other generative AI techniques within your organisations? And how are you making sure that that usage is within acceptable boundaries and guidelines? David, would you like to go first? Sure, thank you. I guess this one is a really broad topic. I mean, you could probably spend a long time on this topic alone, but we've seen fines coming out of regulators in the US and we've seen European regulators taking a hard look at AI in the enterprise and what that actually means for regulation. Uh, that's all very current conversations with regulators. On our side, because we're a, fundamentally a trading company, then we have to be very careful about what we put out there in terms of AI-related technology because it can be seen as an inducement to trade or it can be seen as insights that people are relying on. So therefore, it brings a whole range of questions into play such as, well, if I do get an insight and I act upon it, then how can I as the provider trace back the origin of that insight and find out why that insight was provided? So it's a really broad topic. I think on our side, we've got a policy framework in place that, that highly regulates AI in our organization. So models have to be signed off by the chief risk officer. They have to be signed off by me. And we take responsibility for the company as a whole in terms of what ends up out there on in the public domain for AI that we're using internally. So really, you know, I'd open it up to others on how they're approaching it. But as far as ChatGPT is concerned, I've kind of put out a soft wording to the to the team to say, well, please be careful when you use it. Um, but ChatGPT, you know, it's it's a tool, but we are looking at the libraries that OpenAI provide and seeing if we could use those in our own software. So that, that's basically how we're approaching it. Yeah, there's another interesting aspect of this. I noticed recently the direction from Satya Nadella at Microsoft was that uh, their concern was not so much about the um, the input from the AI into the organization, but but the reverse. They were worried about what company secrets might get disclosed to OpenAI or to other language models um, through the questioning. So I might say, you know, how would I solve my you know top secret corporate problem to the model not not being cognizant that that might become part of the training set later on? Um, and I think there's an interesting interplay between copyright material, private material, secret material, and so on that may leak uh, into the public domain via that somewhat diffused avenue of training and then inferencing, revealing those secrets. There's another aspect. It seems that both the US government and the World Economic Forum are cognizant of the unpreparedness of the market for these changes. Um, ChatGPT really has sort of spurred on a, a real moment for the awakening of our understanding of what these large language models might mean. And 
it's been almost an overnight success in the last three months. You can imagine this time last year, we wouldn't have been sitting down for this conversation with this um, level of intensity and interest. The World Economic Forum opened a couple of years ago with a very extensive 100-page paper preparing boards to direct uh, company executives for how to handle these oncoming policy challenges. And more recently, they've released a a toolkit for executive teams about how to operationalize some of these policy frameworks. And it's fascinating that um, the government's so well prepared uh, ahead of the curve, as it were, um, that they're aware that this is going to be something that all of us will have to face um, in creating policies, in adopting policies, uh, and working around the understanding of these new technologies in the organization. But suffice to say, far-reaching um, far-reaching impacts and particularly for businesses like yours, David, where there are um, regulatory controls on the sorts of information you can put out there. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment to pause and, and reflect on, on what this all means. I think the, the thing that I would build um, on both of um, what, what David and Gus were just sort of saying is um, AI is kind of bringing us to a point of having to, to reflect very sharply um, because of how quickly it's coming on. Um, but I would I would widen out for just one second, which is to kind of say, you know, um, the field of kind of like, you know, technology risk management and particularly enterprise technology risk management um, from that perspective of how is technology influencing the kind of the nature of how we're kind of going about our work and how it's influencing the risk models that we have to accept within the kind of organization um, is probably been a bit of an under stated area of kind of risk management. I think whilst everyone's been very focused on things like cybersecurity and kind of threats in, in that domain, um, the organizations generally haven't necessarily been thinking well beyond that kind of space and kind of, you know, how does the technologies that we're bringing to bear for the, um, for the business, um, you know, introduce new risks or mitigate old ones. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think AI within that context, um, you know, is kind of making us focus on that domain a little bit more than what we have done previously. And I think, you know, what we've seen with um, some business practices uh, around the world, but, you know, if we think about, um, you know, Meta and some of their kind of um, behaviours over the last decade um, with respect to um, data science in particular uh, and their application of that um, set of technologies within their business practices, um, you know, probably warranted a little bit more thinking about some of the implications of some of this stuff. And uh, and I think this is this is why people are kind of coming in a little bit more prepared within the kind of AI um, context, but certainly something that we need to be considering more broadly across the whole technology domain, I think, um, and a bit more critically um, than, than what we have done in the past, um, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, building on that, I think the scary truth is that the tech is still in its infancy, right? And so no one knows what direction uh, the future versions will take. And so from a regulatory perspective, we won't have clear answers to start with. Um, we have to uh, start with um, um, a willingness to learn and be transparent and open-minded about it. So addressing it from an enterprise perspective, I think number one, it's going to be a cross-functional effort. So we'll have to need, we will need uh, 
cross-functional team of data people, uh, risk management professionals, and legal professionals who, who need to familiarize themselves with what's out there right now in terms of regulations such as GDPR, HIPAA, or the AI ethics labeling framework. Um, and second is whatever projects we have, uh, can we have uh, if we have risk coverage assessments uh, on whatever we are doing to see if there are risks of data privacy breaches, discrimination, that sort of obvious stuff that we already know about. Uh, that's the second bit. And the third bit is adopting an ethical framework to guide the development and deployment of AI solutions within the organization. So in Australia, we have the Australian AI ethics framework. In the US, we have the US AI Bill of Rights. And uh, in the EU we, EU, we have the EU AI Act. So these frameworks are not uh, bulletproof. Uh, they are just a line in the sand for now. Uh, it's, starting, it's about starting somewhere, learning and adapting as we go. One aspect of the changing nature of uh, this technology is that it does feel um, very inaccessible for almost any company to create a large language model that would compete with the likes of ChatGPT. And therefore, perhaps it's reasonable for us to say that this is a winner-takes-all market, that the, the excitement around OpenAI's um, recent advances uh, has really signaled that, like you, you can't catch us, and and ChatGPT is even uh, a sort of a leap beyond GPT three. I'm sure there's some special source in there, um, most clearly sort of seen around the human reinforcement learning aspects of uh, ChatGPT. So it seems that um, we won't have, uh, Hemel, to your to your point, we won't have much control over the kinds of bias controls and the kinds of, uh, you know, mental models of truth and veracity of no harm. What is no harm and truthful for one is not not particularly that for another. Um, and so we will be in a, a position of receiving the AI, as it were, rather than creating the AI. Um, and I think that poses some interesting um, dilemmas uh, for for people starting to incorporate some of these generative technologies into their business practices. I think it's an interesting point uh, for sure. One of the things that has been on my mind is are board level um, members able to actually understand the risks associated with some of this material and even within technology teams and data teams do they understand the math or the science that's behind some of these models? Because when you're signing something off, I mean, do, do you really understand what a generative network is doing? Or do you really understand what a statistical model or, or, you know, maybe the basics are relatively straightforward, like linear regression and things like that. But once you get into advanced math, then who's actually signing these off and who's qualified to do so? So we are receiving uh, the AI, I do agree with that. Um, but what I'd also add to that is it's also a compelling componentry conversation. Like if I'm going to build a a taxonomy of words and meaning, then why would I want to build that myself? I mean, I can actually go to OpenAI and get that library. So it actually accelerates the innovation for companies because they don't have to build all of that. They can actually just use that piece. So that I'd just add on top of what Gus was saying really around, you know, it's not likely that we'll build a language model of our own, but we certainly can use componentry that other people have built. 
Awesome. Thank you, everybody, um, for contributing to that. And um, we'll move on to our next question, which was posed to the group by Gus. The question was, given that AIs are likely to become more productive than any human, what does that mean for how we value human productivity? Gus, we'll go, we'll go over to you. Thanks, Michaela. I guess this is a bit of a, a pro provocative position, uh, as, as Hemel mentioned, the, the future is unwritten and we don't really know the full implications and how we will operationalise these technologies in the main. But I think it's fair to say that um, for a certain class of problems, um, these, these generative models will far outstrip the smartest of humans in certain areas of performance. Thinking about that, I know in my own hiring um, practice, I tend to reward highly productive people. The, the you know the mythical 10x developer who can drive change in an organisation tends to get an outsized reward for their productivity. Given that now the spectrum of human performance will be reduced to negligible by comparison to to a, a generative model. What does it say about how we value human contribution, human performance? What are the pay scales? Uh, are we merely reduced to asking prompts of AI and um, refining and reviewing the inferences drawn? Or is there a new charter for what human performance is? Is it based on new creativity, teamwork, or some other soft skills that perhaps a generative model can't can't operate in. So I'm just curious to know, like, how other people think, like, are we going to expect a lot more from our uh, labor forces now and, and sort of say, well, now you've got this supercharged bicycle at your disposal. I want you to all ride at 100 kilometers an hour, um, as it were. So, yeah, I just thought I'd open that that question up to the teams. How do you feel personally? Do you feel as sort of like you need to uh, imbibe the power of AI in order to be productive in your own roles? Um, where will where will we be superseded and where will we remain valid? I, I think certainly from my perspective, I mean, I, I look at this, uh, you know, coming, coming at it from an engineering and technology perspective, I look at this within the broad arc of kind of history of, automation and kind of empowerment um you know and we we kind of say okay we don't as developers write machine code very much anymore and in fact we don't even write um very low level kind of c code very much anymore we can, we tend to operate in those kind of higher order um languages when we're kind of writing code and we typically build on top of libraries that other people have kind of built in order to kind of like maximize our productivity so really thinking about um the ways that we bring this technology to bear so that we're doing less boilerplate work and kind of less of that kind of, um, you know, day-to-day -day, um, mundane stuff. And we're kind of working on the innovation kind of component of that. Um, I think an interesting um, uh, comparison point is to kind of look at how um, e even just content production has kind of changed over the last kind of decade or so where, um, you know, it used to be that you would be paid on a kind of words, you know, basis and kind of all that sort of stuff. But as we've kind of looked at, um, you know, things like um, automated production of content, um, you know, outsourcing of content, the value of that kind of, you know, per word, um, you know, value has dropped um, considerably over the last decade. And really where the, um, 
you know, the value of productivity has shifted towards is that editing, um, you know, capability far more than the kind of the word production capability, if I, if I frame it that way. And so what we've done is we've kind of like we've reset our expectations of what what is productivity in that that respect. And, you know, we've sort of said we value more the editing actions than we do the actual production of the words. And, um, you know, and so we now kind of, you know, pay like, you know, according to that and kind of, you know, um, staff according to that as well. So I think, I think that probably provides a little bit of a, a base for how I think, uh, how I think about this kind of going forward. But, um, I also think that we we're still trapped in a kind of you know a little bit of a factory model of kind of you know uh, how how we think about our workforces and you know it's it's hours at the keyboard and how much you know output do they generate in in those hours and um, rather than thinking about um, the outcomes and objective based um, view of kind of how we're um, delivering new value to the organization or growing the business or those sorts of things and i think this will i hope start to precipitate a little bit more of a conversation about you know it, it's is it time at the keyboard or is it the outcomes from your time at the keyboard that kind of determines your productivity and i think that's um that's probably maybe 20 years overdue that conversation but it's going to come on very fast now i think building on the factory model which andrew just referred to i think Ever since the industrial revolution, and include if you include, also include the digital and IT revolution in there, uh, humans have tried to make make themselves a bit like machines. They have learned to, you know, arrive on time. And they've learned to take instructions and convert into something of value, uh, to repetitive tasks reliably, all of that, right? But now machines are now getting much better at at being machines than humans are, um, and so humans must must now relearn how to be human. Uh, so I think the focus is going to shift from human productivity to human creativity, and I believe that AI tools are not a substitute for human creativity, but they can rather be an assistive tool to help people achieve their full creative potential by providing new and unique ideas and insights uh, and helping them just automate repetitive tasks. So um, ChatGPT can only do uh, at this stage what humans have been doing in the past, but maybe do it much quicker uh, without mistakes, uh, maybe probably a bit cheaper and at scale, right? So, but only a human can do something which no other human has done before. Um, ideas, gen idea generations um, and, and bringing in, you know, um, experiential uh, learnings uh, to its place. So I think their uh, human creativity will be at even at a much higher premium when all the um, grunt work is being handled by machines. I think that's a really great point. I'm, I'm absolutely on board with that as well in terms of being able to enhance creativity by taking away some of the mundane elements of, of doing that job. Like I'll give you a good example. We had a brand voice discussion the other day in terms of establishing a brand voice and a previous company I worked at had a strong brand voice and we always had a bottleneck around reviewing content. So every time it got to publishing the content, it would have to be reviewed and then be a, a back and forth process about the voice. Whereas the discussion we had yesterday was quite different. It was like, let's train a model to be the voice and let's just put the content through the model and it'll come out with the brand voice. And just for a bit of fun, I put that into chat GPT. And I asked it to change the tonality of some of my wording in a previous article, and it was brilliant. It really worked very well. So some of that mundane element can be taken away uh, with tools such as, you know, generative generative AI uh, techniques. But I'm also, you know, quite worried. You know, I actually feel that 
with this type of technology in the public domain, people are using it in places you just wouldn't expect and it's hard to detect. So, you know, I actually know someone who for a bit of fun had a whole phone conversation using ChatGPT. So <laughs> these sort of things are just unintended uses and it's in the public domain. So I am quite worried, you know, optimistic, but also worried. Some really great answers, everybody. Um, the next question was put forward to the group by Andrew. The question was, as we try to empower people across the organization to be able to creatively solve business problems, how might assistive AI provide additional skills to these domain experts so that they can get to concept, concept or value more quickly? Um, Gus, we'll, we'll go over to you for this one. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm responding to this question, so I'm also also keen to hear Andrew's um, sort of uh, foregrounding of of where it where it came from specifically for him. But I think David's right in that you know this the idea of a writer's block at work where you've got a clean slate and you just need some ideas to get you going. I think it's, it's very good to have these prompts or at least inferences um, coming back from prompts. Um, I, I hope that we're not turned into um, prompt generating machines where our creativity is balanced on our ability to creatively create a prompt um, and that there is some sort of higher order function where we can deploy um, a strategy around AI to to draw out of it what, what might be useful for our needs. In terms of ideation, I, I think it does rely on user research and um, it, it has to be connected to, I mean, you know, in a commercial context, a business opportunity and there might not be presently the sorts of insights available inside a large language model which help with that understanding and in many ways that user research is about going from a place of high uncertainty high unknowns within the organization and communicating through learning what the what the customer need is or what the business opportunity is so where does where does a generative uh, inferencing machine come from um, in that space? Well, it might help us sort of frame conversations, talk in more gentle tones to different audiences, um, give us scripts for interview, but I don't think it will replace the interview process itself in some senses. But let me hear from you, Andrew, if I could throw back to you. Oh, thanks, Gus. Um, so I think for, for me, I, I think about this through the lens of we have probably over the last 40 years or so, generated more and more specialists within our organizations. You know, everything from the way that we teach at school through to university, we graduate a great number of kind of like, you know, super specialized people, um, you know, with the view that being specialist is more useful, um, you know, to, to organizations, especially as um, we've moved into more information kind of type um, uh, and, and knowledge-based work. And so, what then happens is that we then go through this process of saying once people enter the workforce that they need to become more T-shaped and so less specialised and kind of more able to kind of, you know, um, function in some of these other domains that are um, perhaps adjacent to, to the one that they uh, specialised in. And, and I think that's generally a good thing. It's kind of like it's good to have a balance in terms of your skills and kind of like uh, interests. Um, but what I find really interesting is when you go out and work with a with an organization, you often find these kind of areas of um, creative problem solving at the edge of the organization where you've got um, a person who is supremely skilled in supply chain or logistics or, uh, you know, 
um, chemistry to do with kind of you know production of um, a new product or um, engineering or whatever that might look like. And how do you start to augment those people with additional kind of like just-in-time skills where you can help them solve those kind of like broader creative problems that they might have at the edge. So, you know, say uh, a logistics specialist, um, you know, rather than sending them on a boot camp to kind of like teach them how to code, maybe you're having a kind of generative AI assistant um, who can provide, you know, some of the, the baseline fundamentals. So then they don't necessarily have to kind of like go and build a business case to go and get an engineer that can kind of help and sit and work with them to kind of, um, you know, do, do the, the piece of work that they were kind of thinking of. And, and so I think about this through the context of what we've been seeing around the low code, no code kind of um, trajectory over the last few years in particular, and how that's really starting to transform people's ability to um, make change at the edges of the organization and really empower people to be able to, um, you know, create innovative solutions to the problems that they have and, and think about them creatively, but then expand that kind of concept out to kind of think about, you know, um, maybe I'm not the best writer. Could I get um, ChatGPT to kind of like help me write? I love David's example earlier about like, you know, using style transfer to kind of like bring things into a tone of voice, you know, um, you know, uh, or, you know, if I'm a chemist, you know, using it to kind of like, you know, potentially help me write some code that might simulate different, um, uh, you know, chemical models that I'm kind of working on, that, that sort of stuff. And so I think there's some really interesting um, assistive qualities uh, to, to some of this generative AI that can just help empower people to be more creative at the edges of the organization uh, and really solve some of those problems. Yeah, as um, adding on to it, I think as Charlie Munger, the legendary investor and Warren Buffett's um, closest friend said once that all the wisdom in the world cannot be found in one little academic department, right? So innovation is enabled by bringing ideas from one discipline into the other. And I, I think that's where ChatGPT has a big role to play in terms of assisting experts. And the example which comes to mind for me is, let's say, a marketing director, right? He he or she uses a tool like ChatGPT um, to help with productivity tasks, such as analyzing a big data set and then coming up with uh, ways to talk uh, get to their target market, target segments, what kind of messaging should they use and what channels to use, right? So that's a productive use of uh, ChatGPT for a marketing director. However, it can then also help them innovate by assisting them with ideas from other domains, such as psychology, finance, systems thinking, to kind of um, refine or polish the messaging they're going out with or um, uh, grow their segments based on solid principles from system systems disciplines, right? So they're not necessarily trained or come with experience in these fields, um, but they, they can get that extra edge by using assistive uh, AI in, in whatever they are an expert in. So in a sense, it builds on what they already know and fills in the gaps in the areas which they lack knowledge in. I think that's some really great answers. And I certainly uh, want to touch a little bit on the low or no code initiative that Andrew raised. I think that's very interesting from the point of view of enabling more creativity wider in the organization, which typically would have been more of a dev first approach. So one of the things that I think people are seeing is that they can take control of the tech in order to generate outputs for them that are relevant within their domains without having to go to someone like a data scientist and say, please find the meaning out of this data, they can actually do that at the edge now and really accelerate their innovation. But one thing I'd, I'd just 
like to add is if you widen it out from just language models, AI in general is extremely useful for looking for deep meaning in large data sets or complex situations where you just wouldn't see that if you were an average human. So, for example, if I have a portfolio and I'm trying to determine what are the drivers of that portfolio in return and risk, I can put it into a classification model to say, well, can you look for patterns here and see if you can see anything that's driving the returns of this portfolio that I otherwise can't find out? And one case in particular that we've done in the past is if a fund manager tells you that they invest with a certain style, you can actually get an AI model to tell them whether they are or are not investing in that style. So you can actually use it in a way to audit people to say, well, can you please introspect this portfolio and tell me the style of investment? So I think from that point of view, it also really empowers people to, to lift up their level of understanding of what's going on in complex situations. David, you mentioned um, earlier the challenge of the conceptualization of what these language models are or, or AI more generally. Um, and indeed, it is difficult when you when you get into sort of maths. It's sort of a bit of a dead end for most people in a depth of understanding. Um, and I notice in, in talking socially to friends about these things, uh, AIs that um, and these friends don't have any sort of scientific background in it, there's a real tendency to project onto the AI a human subjectivity or, 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 you know, we talk about it having feelings or it having a style or um, where in actual fact, a hyperdimensional uh, Markov chain tying together probabilities, um, graph queries of a, essentially a graph database, that's a difficult and different sort of proposition for people to get their heads around. So I think one of the things that might unlock organizationally um, some some use, some interesting use, some appropriate use is just helping people get a mental model of what it is. Um, it's not a human. It's not a oracle. It's not making up new stuff. Uh, and in some dismissive um, discussions, I've, I've heard uh, it, it referred to as, um, and excuse my language, but um, authoritative bullshit, that it, it sort of sounds impressive for its um, completeness and its confidence, but essentially it, it's a collection of probabilities which if you turn up the temperature in your um, inferencing, then you're going to get more randomness and more creativity. And um, I think it's a very, very interesting challenge. And often you notice with, that, you know, we would all remember the emergence of the internet and talking about email and a bot and a cookie. What, what are these things? They were, they were miraculous when you first heard about them and now they're, they're mundane and commonplace and in common parlance with, with children. Um, but there's a, real, there's a real sort of inflection point now where people are trying to figure out what does it, what's, a, what's an appropriate metaphor for, for what we're dealing with, um, with these large language models. I do like the, uh, the term, um, you know, authority BS works pretty well. But uh, the, the other one I heard most recently was stochastic parrot, which uh, which I, I really enjoyed that as a kind of idea. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's very simple to kind of like, you know, outfox what's going on inside, um, you know, chat GPT in particular, you know, throw two big numbers at it and ask them to multiply it together and it uh you know invariably gets it wrong but it looks like it should be right um you know uh which which is quite common um i i mean i wonder as we start building this kind of conceptual model for it and and you know it'd be fascinating to see you know like the the, the kids now who who sit behind gen z 
um, you know, who will grow up in the kind of the, the AI world as, you know, uh, Gen Z grew up in a kind of you know, social media world, um, how that's going to influence their thinking about this. And I think at the moment, um, we're sort of all of us are sort of broadly fixated on ChatGPT because it's kind of like it, it is a big step forward in terms of um, what's been available um, historically uh, and is and is quite powerful in that respect. Um, and I wonder whether we will end up with an ecosystem of kind of you know of various different you know um, AI assistive and generative um, tooling that kind of sits around um, us as individuals and uh, is almost having a, um, a set of um, experts that we can kind of call on to kind of say, okay, once I've once I've understood what these things are good at individually, um, you know, how might I start to use them together to kind of say, okay, well, here's my med bot over here that's kind of looking at stuff that's kind of to do with my health and all that sort of stuff. And here's my performance bot, which is kind of looking after, you know, how fast I run and stuff like that. And here's my kind of chat bot that's kind of, you know, being able to um, help help me guide, you know, my writing or kind of something like that. And, you know, um, maybe, maybe in the future we have this kind of, you know, scenario where in the same way that I have an email account and a kind of, you know, a, a set of social media accounts, um, you know, maybe I've got a set of different AIs that are kind of, you know, assisting me in my day-to-day uh, and, and each of them perform in the areas that they are um, very good at. But um, that, that would require us that each individually have a very good grasp of what's the domain in which this is this is going to function very well. And certainly as it starts to get to the edges of that, um, you know, me critically being able to assess that and say, actually, you are not good at this kind of, you know, capability. I need to move to this other thing. Um, and uh, all, all the while that we think it's, um, you know, authoritative in that regard, um, that's going to be a challenge. You need to think of it more like a tool um, in, in to, to help guide through that, I think. It's a really good thing. I think um, pre one of the examples I'd, I'd probably bring up on the new generation is pre-mobile phone. I don't think a lot of people really realise that phones used to be point-to-point devices that you had to be in a place at a time in order to take a call. So this sort of revolution in the way that people work and mobility, I think the future generation will probably be mind-boggled about the fact that we used to have people who learnt judicial cases and had to memorize them in order to be able to come up with a decision construct on new cases like that that whole element would just go away but one of the things i think we've discovered is that much to the point of gas earlier people sometimes overestimate what they're capable of in terms of ai and it's it's very common i mean we've seen plenty of cases you know you could probably pick pick on tesla there with their autopilot for example where people have expected it to do more than what it can actually do And one of the situations we've found is we were quite nervous putting models out there on the basis that people will conceive it as truth, where it's actually quite simplistic. And if you look at what it's doing, it's just a machine looking at regressive data, figuring out patterns, but it's not considering the broader universe of what else could be factored in. So there was a resistance really when we were trying to put out things like factor models or or classification models where people would say, look, it's too simplistic. People will conceive it as the truth. So we still need to be careful about how people approach these tools and what they think they can do. Kate Crawford, I think um, she's out of Microsoft, has got a great new book out called The Atlas of AI, and it talks about the broader conceptualization of the costs involved in not just AI production, but uh, technology in general, and, and goes right back to sort of mining practices and the exploitative nature of that, which 
um, supports the silicon chip industry, which supports uh, the rest of the compute needed to generate these language models. And Hemel, you mentioned before, like the low cost, like there is a sense that there's um, an efficiency or, or an absence of cost or, or a great productivity that's coming out of um, the use of AI. And what Kate Crawford says is that actually what capitalism does is it hides the true cost of farming, of mining. You, you never talk about remediation when you talk about the profits of a mining company. But if you did take that into account, it's enormously expensive to to take on those mining practices. And similarly with AI, training uh, a language model um, to the tune of GPT-3 is, from what I understand, you know, 250,000 GPUs with direct memory linkages running full tilt for a month, or you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to generate these models. Uh, and then the ongoing inferencing, although a smaller cost, is still very substantial and has significant compute associated with it. And obviously, as this expands and accelerates, it will the usage of those GPUs will just go through the roof. So, you know, when when I act as a CTO and advising the engineering teams, I'm always talking about you. Ha you can't just create software without a concept of a budget. Um, and what is the full cost? What is the full model of utilizing AI? We also note that within OpenAI's pricing models of their APIs to date, there's a radical um, cost difference between the more narrow or naive or earlier models versus you know, DaVinci or, or GPT-3. Um, and so maybe there's going to be a a price war, like you know, a little bit like in stock trading, it's it's all about the information you have, and if you're up if you're up to paying the cost for the highest quality, most expensive, most up to date models, then um, there'll be an exclusivity, a sort of a ghettoization of access to information, access to these models, where the best worker becomes the person with the access to the most efficient model, um, and I'm wondering if there would be some sort of um, race around that sort of stuff. Interestingly, OpenAI themselves, I, I believe, are ostensibly um, a not-for-profit. No, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the sort of genesis that there's no revenue for OpenAI at the present, apart from the, the sort of uh, use of their APIs. But I think that's more of a throttling device than anything else at this stage. But uh, when people start to leverage the the power of, of these systems on a price war, then um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see who, who can buy in and who's left out. Yeah. Just a quick point it, on it, that actually, sorry, um, just very quickly on the concept of an uneven playing field through access to better tooling than other people, the same type of thing played out in the share market. So when you had people with high budgets putting servers right next to the matching engine on on ultra fast cabling executing at nanosecond speed, the regulator said, well, hey, what about the retail investor who has to go through a web terminal and go through multiple hops to get there? So they enforced that all servers had a minimum length of cable between the matching engine and the server. So will regulators step in to say, well, these people have an unfair advantage now because they've got access to the tooling versus your average person who does not? You could, just building on that, you could imagine a fairly dystopian uh, implementation of this at a consumer level where, uh, you know, if you're prepared to pay a subscription, say, maybe you get access to kind of, you know, a, a good model or whatever. And maybe for those who are not prepared to pay, um, then you you have an ad supported version of this where, you know, you ask an AI a question or something like that. And 
in the middle of the answer, you get back a, uh, you know, a little interlude that says, hey, by the way, have you checked out such and such? And, you know, uh, in, and, and kind of, you know, providing that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think hi- history shows that uh, if there's if there's an opportunity for kind of like multiple tiering uh, from a pricing perspective, then uh, there will be many innovations around the business models that will kind of support that. And uh, and we, when we know where ad-led monetization leads. I think we've kind of had a pretty good experience of that for the last 20 years or so. So, yeah, some buyer beware in there, I think. Yeah, I'm already hearing um, some things about AI, OpenAI coming up with a premium sort of subscription uh, model fee, which is per user per month kind of thing. Uh, And I've just received an invite this morning from Google's AI test kitchen, which is Lambda, which is the competitor for OpenAI's ChatGPT. Uh, so some interesting uh, developments there, and I think it will pan out in a couple of years. But I think uh, we are with ChatGPT as we were with Napster in 2000. Um, I mean, uh, people loved it. Uh, at the end, it was deemed to be legal. And then today we have Spotify and iTunes uh, we have figured out a way to create business models around it. So I think uh, ChatGPT might follow a similar route in the future. Thank you very much for your contributions. Um, finally, our last set of questions, which were posed to the group by Hamil. Um, those questions were, what are the use cases today for ChatGPT in the enterprise environment? And what are the use cases for ChatGPT outside of the enterprise environment? Um, Hamil, we'll get you to kick this one off. Sure. So um, from my perspective, if I look at it today, uh, there are three sort of use cases which come to mind for to me in, in the enterprise. One is for enterprise support. Uh, and what, where, what I think about there is like an information concierge. So you walk into any organization today and informa- there will be multiple information repositories. It will be a, some kind of SharePoint site, multiple network folders, a Confluence site or a wiki. And it's just information, even after all the all the investment in uh, tools and technologies, it just seems to be scattered everywhere. Um, and so I believe that the first probable use case is a sort of an information concierge where people can type in their question and chat GPT can uh, give a cohesive answer, stitching together information from multiple scattered data sources, right? So that's that's one use case in terms of enterprise support. Um, the second one, which I see is done uh, in terms of customer interactions. So on e-commerce websites today, we have chatbots, but they are pretty dumb chatbots. We can, with the very narrow, they answer a very narrow scope of questions about your tracking or your delivery or whatnot. Uh, but having uh, something more intelligent like ChatGPT enables one to ask more um, of that website. For example, if I'm on an e-commerce website, I'm looking at some shoes, I can ask, oh, is this genuine leather? What grain leather is this? When do, do your uh, Black Friday sales start, for example? Uh, so then uh, those richer interactions then uh, uh, give way to a more sort of richer customer journey and help um, help for you know, increased sales, that sort of thing. Um, and the third thing is what we touched on earlier in terms of product development. Um, and when I say product development, it could be content development. So you, the likes of blogs and videos and um, imagery, which go on to your uh, social media channels. But it also could be 
the low code or no code um, so, um, software development that we talked about. So how are we assisting uh, software developers to generate all that boilerplate code so they can focus on more of the solution architecture and the high level work. Um, testing, for example, I believe there's a lot of scope uh, to test, for, to aid developers do their unit testing, but also um, uh, look at more sort of uh, automated testing in the way we design our software products. So those three broad areas I see in the enterprise, enterprise support, customer interaction, and product development. I think that's a great, great uh, topic areas, definitely. Um, Hemel, I mean, I think certainly focusing in on the enterprise support side of things, I think there's, there's some real opportunities around um, I mean, I love the information concierge idea. I think that's uh, it's super powerful. And then you start to say, okay, well, maybe we have a generalized version of this that can kind of help me find information, but then couple it with some other tooling that kind of might help support that even further. So um, you start to kind of think think about things like if I'm in the marketing team uh, and I'm relatively new, um, I might be able to ask it something along the lines of, um, you know, can you pull out, um, you know, this type of marketing campaign um, that we've done over the last 10 years, um, you know, organizationally. And then, um, you know, with maybe some additional tooling that sits off to the side because ChatGPT is not very good at this, but um, then be able to say, oh, can you go and get all the data for that and actually draw a line across, you know, the performance of these different campaigns, taking into account the growth of the business and stuff like that, and really starting to kind of, you know, utilize some of that data processing capability that, you know, um, certain tools are getting better at now, um, you know, as well as kind of then that kind of much more interactive kind of informational kind of um, type of uh, interactions that, that can be had um, via something like ChatGPT. And then maybe it's orchestrating some of that stuff in the background. I mean, it's slightly different um, set of use cases there. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly within that kind of um, that context of kind of business use, I think that is, there's some interesting opportunities there. And the other one I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, as, as everyone on this call would uh, appreciate and probably all the listeners too, um, you know, documents go out of date pretty rapidly for, for most organizations. And, you know, like, is, is this thing still relevant? Uh, is it up to date? You know, is my policy document still reflective of the current situation? You know, all that sort of stuff. And um, I think there's potentially some interesting opportunities in there where you have um, something like, say, a chat GPT being able to uh, um, read through those policy documents and potentially suggest edits back um, in order to bring them back up to kind of like, you know, to, to you know, um, a, a version rather than, you know, we go through that compliance process once every year and kind of go, oh, we've got to update all the documents and we kind of do that and they all go back in the drawer again for, for another year. Um, you know, instead of that process, we we have this almost like live um, live documentation that's almost kind of evolving itself in the background um, as, as a result. And I think there's potentially some really interesting use cases of the technology in that, uh, that space for sure. There's... Um an idea around, I think that the sort of the subheading is explainable AI, and the idea is that like when you have an inference, what's the provenance of that? Like why do you, why is why is this result coming back? Where what are the data sources? What's the probability associated with the statements? And in a similar vein, Andrew, what I hear you saying is sort of a corollary to that of executable AI, where it can take the inference and then do something with it. And, and we've seen literal examples of this where you can ask it to, you know, write some Python code and eval it um, and, and it will actually perform. And someone, I think, even started a virtual machine inside GPT or some, some sort of some fun like this. 
But certainly having the AI being able to do things in the real world, it's almost like give it some robotic arms. And, and you know, at the end of a meeting, it can grab all the notes off the table, take a photo of the whiteboard and distribute the notes and update the documentation. It's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant sort of conceptualization of what we might want to do with these models to give them wings. Um, and, and it may also be, I mean, you, you know, one of the, the interesting aspects of ChatGPT is when it, you, you realize it's capped at knowledge of the world up until 2001. But what about right now? What about uh, being able to balance the inference with some modern data set or, or some real-time observations of, of visual or audio and aug augmenting the inferences in that way? I think there's a lot, a lot of innovation to happen happen around those spaces. The uh, I, I'm surprised that, I mean, being a software engineer and being in those worlds, and I, I don't know, I'd love to hear your experience as well, but in my programming circles, Copilot and, and the code generation tools have actually had a bit of a lackluster reception, a little bit of maybe, you know, you know, what, what does this mean for me? I'm a professional. I've been lauded after for so long. You know, how, how dare you sort of write code? It's, it's my... It's my position, not not a computer's, and and um, second guessing that. But I, I'm interested with other people. Like I, I was expecting Copilot to be a revolution and to to do all of the work and to not write any code without it by my side. And I found actually quite the opposite. I don't know whether it's my failing and inability to be flexible in introducing a new work mode. I haven't quite understood how to get productivity out of it. But it's been difficult for me to integrate that in the way my imagination thought I would have. I think um, Copilot was something that we tried and it was a lackluster result, that's true. But it is also true that a lot of developers today, they're on they're on GitHub stealing code all the time and they're they're on channels and, and taking code for certain things. So it's kind of automation, I think, of a lot of what is actually going on anyway. And from my perspective, do I really want my developers writing a algorithm for rearranging some tiles on a screen? Not really. Like, I mean, they, they should be able to just take that. But we are also extremely latency sensitive. So do I want their skill when it comes to executing logic as fast as possible on, let's say, a, a hash algorithm? Absolutely. And that, that's where I want them to focus. So I think uh, some automation definitely in the developer space is, is very advantageous. In terms of use cases in the enterprise, there's just so many, it's hard really to, to narrow down. I mean, on the basis of what Hemmer was saying around concierge, that's a really great one. I mean, when you consider that we used to file things in folders and have advanced structures on folders for information so you could find that taxonomy. And then maybe 10, 15 years ago, we stopped kind of doing that. And we just used search to find things. And so in the future, it's just an evolution of that. Like why now are we filing at all? Like we can just find the information wherever it is. And the one thing that I'd throw in there as an enterprise use case is process mining. So when it comes to what is really going on in your organization, can you actually see it? But if you train some agents across emails, logs, systems, and it can actually tell you what is really going on, what, what is the process that people are following? So that sort of deep level insight, I think AI can help with that to uncover efficient inefficiencies and, and generate efficiencies in organization just by introspecting the artifacts of what people are doing. Uh, just just on the um, GitHub and Copilot kind of side of things, and you know, getting getting code in, I've spent a lot of time trying to uh, to get these various models to kind of produce code for me uh, uh, over, over the last year or so. Which the way that I've sort of distilled it down now is it's it's a fancy autocomplete, 
that works really well in some very trivial scenarios and gets increasingly bad as you ask it to do more complex things, essentially. Uh, and I think, uh, Gus, one of the things you sort of mentioned was like, you know, Copilot had a bit of a lackluster kind of, you know, um, reception. And I think it was because everyone for a minute kind of went, oh, I can get it to write a quick sort algorithm for me. And it's kind of like, yeah, great. Awesome. That's that's great. How often do you actually write a quick sort algorithm? You know, like it's very, very infrequent. And, and in fact, pretty much every single uh, programming language has libraries that would implement that for you at very good, um, you know, resolution of speed and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, for, for an average developer, they don't do that type of activity very frequently. Um, and so the things that you're asking it to do tend to be a little less trivial and, and a little bit more context specific. And I think that's, that's where, you know, the challenge with a lot of these things, um, sits at the moment. I mean, certainly I've had more success with kind of describing a context, describing what functions it can use and things like that, and then getting it to kind of, you know, like build, build out some, um, fairly basic kind of stuff, um, as a result. Uh, and then Hemel touched on this earlier. Um, around testing um, and that's that's probably the area where I reckon I've had the most success in terms of writing code with um, you know these tools um, by being able to provide a function or kind of like you know a, a snippet of code or something like that and say generate me 10 test cases for this or, or, or whatnot and it generally does not a bad job at that sort of stuff because it's kind of looking at the the components that exist in the code and kind of um, you know can can take a pretty good crack at you know basic coverage kind of type testing uh, for for that sort of stuff. So yeah, there's some interesting models in there, but I think uh, the average work of most developers is is kind of non-trivial uh, for for most cases. So uh, autocomplete speeds you up, but uh, it's, yeah, I think this is is going to be in that sort of territory for for most engineers. Indeed, and and points to the fact that I think the main work of engineers and engineering teams is is social. It's a communication um, practice, and um, it's about discovering and learning together. And the code is a side effect in many ways of those of those um, observations. So, yeah, uh, an interesting challenge of how to integrate these things. There are. As David mentioned, just almost infinite um, tangents to go off on, and uh, I think we're out of time. But thanks, everybody. It's been it's been lovely to meet you and go through these nascent topics. And I'd love to meet again in a year and laugh at what we thought was going to happen and and what actually happened. Um, all right, we will leave it there for now. I want to thank you all for joining me on the podcast and providing such interesting insights surrounding such a front of mind topic for senior leaders. Um, thank you all for listening and I look forward to catching you next time on the Evolution Exchange podcast. Mm -hmm.